little note from me this uh, this uh, season in our home in the Philston home includes our triplet seniors in college who didn't uh, didn't plan to be back home and living all together with us again but they have been very patient with their mom and dad and uh, the other night we were sitting around the, the table and I said this is bonus time I mean this is fantastic it's great to have everybody home and I could kind of tell maybe I was reading in a little bit but it, it kind of seemed like they needed that reassurance that it was okay that they uh, that they were there <laughs> so anyway uh, we, we have loved having them back home but you know I know that y'all are dealing with uh, disappointments in the same way that we are that uh, that, that three uh, seniors in college aren't going to be um, fulfilling that senior year with their friends on their campus and graduation and yet um, and yet we're, we're, we're rallying, making the most of it. But if we could, you know, snap our fingers and, and fix this thing and get them back to, uh, to their campuses, I know, I know we would, and I, I know you all would love a quick fix to it as well. But some quick fixes are not good. And it doesn't surprise me then that in the midst of, of the uncertainty, you know, we don't like uncertainty, and so we tend to fill in the gaps, right? We tend to to think, okay, well, what does this mean? What is God doing? We tend to fill in the gaps. We want a quick fix. We want an end to the way we're feeling about it. And so it doesn't surprise me during this uncertain time that the typical cast of characters that normally seeks to provide quick answers and quick fixes and pat answers has rushed out there, as Alexander Pope says, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And so we look for quick answers a lot of time, and, and that's not good. That's not good. Palm Sunday, and the crowds, and the shouts of Hosanna, it represents a desire to fix what's broken quickly. It represents a, a desire to end a, an occupation, an oppressive regime over Judea. The Romans had been occupying them for quite some time. And the shouts of Hosanna represent something that already had happened 200 years earlier. Judea was occupied by a, a Greek regime at the time. And a man named Simon Maccabeus marched in 200 years before Christ to the same kind of shouts, the same kind of celebration. Hosanna, which means Lord save us. The idea here is that, that we often want, usually we want, a quick fix. In this case, a political fix. And I think that's what the crowd was expecting of Jesus. They, they thought that Jesus would bring a swift end to the occupation. That he would bring and restore the dignity of Israel again and restore their freedom that they enjoyed. And so their shouts were uh, in affirmation of what they thought was going to be a conquering king, not a suffering servant. This past week, I, I saw an article by N.T. Wright in Time Magazine. And he, he echoes some of what I'm, I'm saying here about quick fixes. And he quotes T.S. Eliot. 
who stepped in, a poet who stepped in during uh, the, the World War II in 1941, he wrote these lines warning people about a hope that is too small for the human spirit. He said this, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love for the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Now, maybe... Maybe you don't agree with waiting without hope or without love. I, I think what he's saying is it's sort of a, a, a way of hyperbole, to, a form of hyperbole to get us to think, what kind of hope do we need? What kind of love do we really need? So much of the time, we want a political solution. We want, uh, if you're a conservative, you, want, uh, you put your faith in the markets. If you're a liberal, you put your faith in the government. I know that's simplifying things, but that's what we do. We look for a quick fix. We look for a bigger lever to move the world. And what Eliot is saying, and what I think you're going to see in this passage this morning from Psalm 118, is a deeper hope, a call to a much bigger hope. From the Word of God, Psalm 118, starting, picking up from our prayer earlier with verse 19. Hear God's Word this morning. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. There's the Hosanna part. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horn of the altar. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God, bless now this word, not only to our minds to understand, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our hands and feet we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. What keeps us from a bigger hope? Well, smaller hopes. What really keeps us? What's under that? What, what really keeps us from the bigger hope? Well, it's a desire for control a desire to be over our circumstances, a desire to say, Lord, I don't like the way you're running the universe right now, and so let's put me in charge, okay? That's what keeps us from a bigger hope. In this season, I, I really think we're being called to a bigger hope. I, I, I sure am. I've noticed in my own life, my own heart, my own prayer life, my own thoughts, my own aspirations, a desire to bring a swift end to this, a desire to have at least some, some measure of control that I used to have. But what if things just go back to the way they were? Is that what you really want? Is that all you really want? How about instead a bigger hope? Let's take a look at, at how we're being called to a bigger hope this morning. 
got to get it. First of all, it's, it's, it's mainly to let go of that control. It's, it's to be under and not over life. And so first is to have a Lord. To have the Lord over your life and not you over your life. And I know, look, you've heard this before, but the thing is we're not living it. And I know I'm not. I've got a long way to go to letting God be God over my life, over all of life. And second, it's, it's to let God be Savior over my life. So first, let's, let's let God be Lord over our lives. Instead of us being over it, let's let God be God. Let him be Lord over your life. And that means to restore the order. Restore order. You say, Tim, well, I'd, I'd sure like to restore order. Let's get rid of these circumstances. Well, there's, it, it goes deeper than that. It goes much, much deeper than that. And th- that's, that's what this passage is talking about, that there is, there's a depth of need where, where hope has to reach, a hope for something more than just a change of the surface, just to where we can measure and see and feel and taste and touch. To be able to let God to be Lord over our lives is to restore the order of our loves. Our loves are in disorder. That's how Augustine put it, you know, in the, the fourth century. He said, look, sin is basically, you know, rebellion, the human condition, our self-centeredness is basically disordered love. And so to let God be Lord over your life is first and foremost and in the deepest place to let him restore order over your loves. And where do you see this in the passage, Tim? Well, here's, here's where I see it. Yeah, I see it in, the, in this stone, this image of the stone. Now, to understand what the stone is representing, you have to look at the context and look at the words around it. It says, the stone that the builders rejected. There's not a special kind of stone here except in those words, the builders rejected. So the word for stone is eben, like Ebenezer, right? Stone of remembrance. Most people have heard of a song that... That, 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 that references that, Ebenezer. The word Eben here is stone, but, but the particular stone is re- a rejected stone. And what does that mean? What is a rejected stone? What stone do masons reject in that day and age? What, what were they building? Well, when, when you build something, a lot of times it's, 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 it's moving towards, say, like an archway. And always... In that architecture, the keystone or the capstone was designed first. And then the archway was designed to meet it so that that key would fit just right, just in place, and hold the archway together. The arch, the arch was built to meet at the pinnacle with the keystone in place. Well, sometimes... It didn't always work out. The way they were building didn't match up with what the design called for. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of putting my hand, I just realized my hand is sort of right there in your face. I don't know if it's in your screen, but I'm, I'm trying to picture. I want you to just picture an archway, all right? Just maybe look behind me. You can sort of see a keystone here. It's a faux keystone at the top of this, this archway that you can see right there. Well, here's what's happening with this image. Throughout the Old Testament, you can see that, that God is promising something is going to be fulfilled. Right? Something is going to be fulfilled. Abraham is promised to be a father of nations. Adam is promised that there'd, 
There'd be a second Adam. There'd be someone who would, who would come along where Adam was a, a living soul. There would be a life-giving spirit that would come along. Uh, Isaac was almost sacrificed, and then, and then God says, I will provide a lamb. David, David was a king, but, but, but he prefigured the coming, the coming king. Uh, you, you know, there was a lamb that was sacrificed at every year, you know, every year at Yom Kippur, at, at the Day of Atonement. One, two lambs were brought out, and one was slaughtered, and the other was set free, and it, and it symbolized the, the, the sins of the people and the blood that it took. You see, what's happening here is all along, here the Old Testament and the history of, of, of the Hebrews is building this archway. And then when they get to this keystone, this, this Christ, the, the one that, that, that was predicted and prefigured, prophesied, they don't like it. Because why? Because what he calls for is an impossible standard that could only call for a giving up of control. Did you, did you follow that? You see, what, what, the, what, what the, the, the teachers of the law wanted was they wanted to be in control of the law. But here comes a Messiah, the Messiah, the keystone. And he didn't fit their plans. He didn't fit the plans to, uh, to push back against Rome. He didn't fit their plans to, to stay in, to, to keep the people who were in charge still in charge. He didn't fit even the deeper needs that, that they felt they had that didn't quite go deep enough, and that is to restore the order of their souls, to restore the order of their love. You say, Tim, well, I, 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 that sounds like somebody who's uh, very uptight about the law. Well, in, in a way, maybe. I mean, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say it. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. He said, well, that doesn't sound very loving. What does that have to do with love? How does, how does fulfilling the law, how does this keystone, how does that have to do with reordering loves? Well, let's, let's think about that for a minute. Imagine that, and a lot of times this is people's key objection, objection to God sort of holding us accountable to the law. It's their key objection to the idea that God is Lord. It's their, their objection to the idea that God would judge anybody. Well, but, but just imagine just for a minute that, um, that our local government said, hey, for a week, uh, there are no traffic laws. You all just do whatever you want, okay? Just for a week, all right? So here you get this email, and it says uh, from, from one of our uh, city commissioners, he says, look, we, we, the police aren't going to be out. Uh, this is just like a, just total freedom this week. Just relax, and everybody just enjoy yourselves, all right? Now, would you go out? on the road would you go get your groceries or would you wait a week i mean maybe a couple of days it'd be all right people would be testing it out but then you see that green light and you know you can't trust how loving is it how loving is it to just let the law go you know it maybe to to help you understand it a little bit more uh, this is my favorite illustration about reordering loves it's it's a story of my mom who um, most of her life was a nurse. And she was a nurse in a cancer and hemonc clinic, so she was dealing with very sick children and their parents. Sometimes she'd have to hold down a child so that, um, so that a doctor could do a spinal tap, very painful procedure. And one time she told me that, uh, that a mother watching this said to her after the procedure was done, 
he said, I don't know how you do what you do. I mean, I can't, I can't understand how you, you can do this every day. And then she said this. She said, I just love children too much. <laughs> well, my mom didn't push back on it. She didn't call her out on it because this is a, a mother of a very sick child. But think about that for a minute. Is it because she loves children too much that she couldn't do it? Or is it because she just felt uncomfortable and loved really herself too much? I mean, the idea here, I mean, I, I know that sounds harsh, but I mean, to think about yourself in that place of responsibility where you know that not to do the procedure will harm, to do the procedure will hurt. The loving thing is to hurt so that the child will not come to harm. You see, the definition of love is to will the good of the other. Our loves are out of order. And our obeying laws, it's not about the laws themselves in and of themselves. It's about the ultimate purpose in the law. And what is that? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We need to have a Lord over our lives. The keystone, the one who met that impossible standard, who fulfilled the law, the only one who could, in order not just to be an example to us, but second, to be Savior in our place over us. We, we don't just need a Lord over our lives. We need, a, we need a Savior. We need a substitute. To let God be Savior over your life is to stop being your own Savior. The world already has a Savior. I remember one time I was... I was rushing around. I was doing a lot of stuff. I had too many things going on, too many irons in the fire. And somebody said to me, Tim, the world already has a Savior. Are you the Savior of your own life? You need a substitute. You need the substitute. You see, you need that keystone to swing down from its arch and to come in and knock down what you've been building. Sometimes, some of us do. To swing in like a wrecking ball. And then to found a whole new cornerstone. You see, this is what it's saying. Verse 22, the stone the builders rejected, that, that keystone the builders rejected, because it, it didn't keep them in control of the law. It, it didn't, it, 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 see, the, there was this thing called the, the, um, the, the, the halacha. I know that's a hard thing to say unless you, you know, maybe you, you eat Greek food, but... Um, like a falaho. It, it's halaha. And it represents all of the layers of, of tradition over the top of the law. And that's what this archway didn't quite match up with. And so, so what they're saying here is the stone, in tw verse 22, the stone the builders rejected became what? The chief of the corner. The chief cornerstone. A new foundation. Some of us need for that stone to swing into what we've been building, the lives we've been building. And maybe in this time that you've come to have that little voice begin to tell you, look, you're not hoping big enough. Your hope is too small. You need to start over in some areas of your life. Maybe that's you. It needs to swing in and, and, and provide a foundation, a foundation, a substitute, that saves, 
not just a good example to follow, not just a teacher. Jesus came to take the place. See, John Stott put it this way. He said, look, our, our chief problem is this condition. It's where we put ourselves in God's place. And the solution is God putting himself in our place. We need a substitute. We need a savior over our life. And we need to stop saving ourselves. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He had, a, he had a, a little poem that he wrote to his wife when she was dying. He said, all this flashy rhetoric about loving you, I have not had an unselfish thought from my birth. All this flashy rhetoric about loving you, I have not had an unselfish thought from my birth. That's, that's tough. How was he not devastated by that insight about himself? In the midst of, of sorrow, of grief, of losing his wife to cancer, he recognized that so much of what he called his love for her was so motivated by himself. Why was he not devastated by it? Let me illustrate that for a minute because this will help us understand how important it is to have a substitute, have a, a cornerstone that's, that's different from yourself, okay? I've been watching The Good Place, and uh, it's, a, um, it's a Netflix series. My, my kids turned me on to it. I finally got into it, and, uh, you know, it's not bad. I, I, th- there are parts of it that I actually like. Yes, that is faint praise. Because at, at, in the second season, this is a little bit of a spoiler. I'll try not to spoil too much of it. But in, in the second season, uh, this is a group of people who um, think they've died and gone to heaven. And at a certain point, they, uh, they find themselves back on earth, sort of having a second chance at things. And at one point, they're told that there's no chance they're getting into heaven. And so what do they do? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they will die? Well, that's what Solomon said to do if, if there's nothing beyond us. There's no hope. No, this is, what that, there's, this is incredibly insightful. What they did was they said, look, if, <laughs> if, we're, can do, if we can do nothing about our salvation at this point, if we can't save ourselves, if there's nothing we can do for ourselves, let's at least do something for somebody else that's just not motivated by getting something in return. That's not a means to an end. Let's do something that's just an end in and of itself. See, that is the key. If they just went the next step and said, look, here's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's somebody else putting themselves in your place for what they did not deserve. It's taking a penalty for you so that you can be set free. That's why Lewis wasn't devastated by the insight about his profound self-centeredness about the profound self-centeredness of the human condition. Because finally, he was set free. Free to love. Here's how William Coper put it about 150 years ago. He said, How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. How long beneath the law, you see that? How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey but toiled without success. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, that's what we get when you get a substitute. I know you want things to go back to normal. You want a quick fix. You want to snap your fingers. You want an end to this season. But is that all that you want? 
What if things go fully back to normal? Will that give you today the big enough, a big enough hope? What if in this season, what if, what if that keystone is swinging into those places where hope is too small? What if because of this season, you found a cornerstone of bigger hope? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, how we thank you that you're equal to our need, that you fulfilled the law, and yet in so doing, you directed the power of that moment for the benefit of humanity. God, can we see the relevance of it? Can we see the realness of it? Can we receive this morning an even greater measure of grace? We pray that for ourselves, our families, and everyone we influence. In this season of uncertainty, help us not to fill in gaps with lesser hopes. Take us to a greater, deeper, bigger hope. In Jesus' name, amen.